Good morning, Christ Prez. Our scripture today is Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Hear the word of God. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Who is this? That was the question the disciples asked in the story last week, and that question keeps building in our passage this morning. Who is this man? Mark is building a case about Jesus' identity. We've seen that he has power over sin and guilt, the power to forgive, We've seen that he has power over physical illness, power to heal. We've seen that he has power over the forces of nature, power to stop a storm and still the sea. Who is this? This morning, we see that Jesus has power to liberate lives that have been held captive by evil. And that includes every one of us. So let's explore this passage by looking at the power of evil, the enemy of evil, and then the reversal of evil. Okay, so first, the power of evil. Look at verse 2. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. This is the third account in Mark about demonic possession, and it's definitely the most dramatic of those three. And, And I don't know what you make of this. I mean, it's kind of difficult for us to relate to. It sounds maybe irrational, maybe mythological, kind of primitive. We might wonder, didn't ancient people believe in demons and unclean spirits simply because they had no better explanation for things like diseases and mental illnesses and and seizures? 
Didn't they just bring demons in when they couldn't explain certain kinds of natural phenomena? And now that we're more advanced, now that we are able to give other other explanations, why not leave this primitive idea of demons behind? Let me say a couple of things about that. First, as as Westerners, um, we have to be really careful not to be condescending, uh, to have a condescending attitude about this. I remember in seminary, one of my professors, um, I don't remember which class it was, but basically tried to explain away demon possession. And I had a classmate named Joseph who was from Ghana. He raised his hand and he said, you know, you are invalidating the experience of the global church. He said, not only do I believe in demons, but I have cast them out myself. And the professor just really didn't know how to respond to that. He was kind of speechless. Well, the biblical writer's view of rea- uh, way of viewing the world, um, it's much closer to Joseph's than the professor's in this case. See, this idea of unclean spirits, um, it's not a primitive idea. It's, it's like the dominant view of the global church today. It's very contemporary, uh, just not in America right now. And there's evidence within the Bible itself that the biblical writers weren't just being naive about this. Like, it doesn't look like they were just um, bringing in demons to explain diseases or other physical or mental disorders when they didn't know what was going on. There's a really interesting verse in Matthew that suggests this is not the case. Matthew chapter 4, verse 24 says this, Jesus' fame spread through all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. It's interesting that in that verse, the word translated epileptic is a word that could just as well be translated um, as uh, like mental insanity. And so Matthew is able to differentiate among like physical sickness, physical pain, demon possession, and mental illness. We might ask, well, like, can't these things overlap and interconnect? And yeah, sure they can, but that's the point, that the Bible's view of what can go wrong with a human being is pretty nuanced and complex. Like they had categories for these things. They weren't they they were able to make distinctions. It doesn't look like people were going around and saying, We don't know how this works, or we don't know what causes this, so therefore it must be a demon. Um the biblical writer's view was was far more uh nuanced than that. Um, the Bible takes very seriously the power of evil at work in our world. But at the same time, it doesn't see demons hiding behind every bush. You know, C.S. Lewis said this so well. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors which we can fall into regarding the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The devil himself is equally pleased by both errors and celebrates the materialist or a magician with the same delight. You know, the more common error for people like us, I think, is to ignore or dismiss the reality of spiritual evil. But that really doesn't work. Uh, During the civil rights era, many civil rights leaders and social activists were saying that racism could be removed through education and social progress and, and better laws. But King insisted that it was a spiritual battle. When it comes to racism and white supremacy, 
we are up against the power of evil itself, demonic forces at work in society and human hearts. He wrote, quote, Man cannot remove evil through his own power and ingenuity in the strange conviction that by thinking, inventing, and governing, he will at last conquer the nagging forces of evil. In God's magnanimous love, he freely does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Close quote. See, it's like, I mean, King is just one of many of the wisest people in the world who have known that evil is real. The evil is active. The evil is at work to destroy the people and the world that God loves. And you might think, well, that's just the worst news that I've ever heard. I mean, that introduces like this mysterious, spiritual, uncontrollable evil into my worldview. Ah, but let's get some perspective. Belief in spiritual evil doesn't make the world any more evil than it is. We're all living in the same world, whether or not we believe in demonic powers. Believing in spiritual evil doesn't mean your life is going to suddenly turn into a horror movie. No, it just adds a layer of complexity to the problem. It it makes the view um, more nuanced. See, the problem is unavoidable regardless of what you believe, that our world is not the way it should be, and you and I aren't the way we should be. How does evil work in our lives? Does it grab us and drag us into a graveyard like this man Legion? Well, not necessarily, but this passage does give us a picture of how evil goes to work. Let's widen the lens to recall the big story of the Bible. You remember in the beginning, God creates everything good as it should be. Adam and Eve didn't just have a perfect relationship with God, but also their relationships with each other and with creation and even with themselves were flourishing. They were whole in body and mind and spirit. In every way a human being could be whole, they were whole. The Hebrew word for this is shalom, right? Comprehensive flourishing, the way God intended the world to be. But in Genesis chapter three, we meet that talking snake. It's the per, it's like a personification of evil. And what does evil do? Um, not just attack Adam and Eve spiritually, but it begins to disintegrate shalom itself. And so Adam and Eve are not just um, like broken spiritually by evil, but also their relationship with each other is fractured and their relationship with creation and even with themselves as they are plunged into guilt and shame. This is what evil seeks to do, to, to mess with shalom, to, to break it apart, to undo it. Think of your life as a beautifully woven tapestry, all the different parts of your life woven together to make you whole, your body, emotions, mind, your health, your vocation, your relationships with other people, your relationship with God. See, God intends the tapestry of your life to be beautiful, to be a picture of wholeness. And evil seeks to unravel it thread by thread, to disintegrate us, to tear apart what is meant to be together, to unravel us emotionally and physically and socially and mentally and spiritually. This man is a picture of evil at work. Evil has disintegrated the tapestry of his life. He's naked. He's lost his dignity. He's living in isolation without a home. He's alienated from his family and community and society. He has no vocation, no way he can contribute to the world through his work. He cuts himself with stones. So he's like physically disfigured. His mind and body are broken. 
mean, evil has unraveled this man. The beautiful tapestry of wholeness in his life has become like nothing but a heap of tangled threads. We might wonder, like, how did this happen? And really, we don't know. Mark doesn't tell us. But we have some hints that serve as warnings to us. If you look at the description of him in verses 3 through 5, you see that um, on one hand, he's tremendously powerful. He has this superhuman strength. But on the other hand, you see he's completely out of control. Like he has become enslaved. He is mastered by evil. And this is how evil often goes to work in our lives. It begins when we give something more power and control over us than it is meant to have. This can happen really subtly and gradually. It can begin with a tiny crack in the door. Something becomes just a bit too important, a bit too powerful, and then increasingly you find yourself out of control. Someone wrongs you, and you just hold on to the grudge, and it feels so good at first to withhold forgiveness. And then one day you look up and you're in a graveyard of bitterness. Where you begin to dabble in pornography, telling yourself it's just some necessary stress relief. And then one day you find yourself in a graveyard of addiction. Where your career becomes just a little too important to you. You find yourself sacrificing more and more for it. Making excuses for your behavior. Telling yourself you're doing it for your family. And then one day you're actually alienated from your spouse and kids. See, evil seeks to master us, and it can use anything, really, toward that end. Our careers, money, physical appearance, fitness, the success and safety of our kids, a dream or goal. Like, anything that that becomes the thing that gets us out of bed in the morning. The thing that we start to live for. When we give anything but God too much control, too much power, we open the door of our lives to evil and it's ready to crash through. You remember back in Genesis, God says to Cain, evil is crouching at your door. Its its desire is to have you. And if it doesn't get at us through our own willful actions, it, it often gets at us through someone else's, through abuse or neglect. So none of us is literally living in a graveyard, but every single one of us is impacted by evil in one way or another. Every one of us has had threads slowly unravel in our lives. Some aspect of our wholeness, physically, psychologically, relationally, spiritually, that that evil has attacked and unraveled. I wonder where is this happening in your own life? Where have you cracked the door open to the power of evil? How might you have given yourself to the wrong master? Okay, so that's the power of evil. Now let's look at the enemy of evil. You know, one of the remarkable things about this story are all the elements that highlight that Jesus is going into a region of problems, a place full of evil. From the ancient Jewish perspective, none of the signs are good. All the details of the story are shouting out that Jesus and the disciples are entering an area where they just shouldn't be. They're crossing over into a place where they are not welcome. So first, there's that storm, which we looked at last week. Remember, as they were crossing the sea to get to this place, the disciples nearly lost their lives in a horrible hurricane, which Jesus confronted as if the storm itself were an evil power. He rebuked the storm. It's like nature itself was trying to keep Jesus from reaching the other side of the lake. When they arrive, they're in Gentile territory. 
But Jesus and the disciples are Jewish, and this is a place where Jews simply don't go. Going into this place compromises their purity and their ritual cleanliness. So Jesus is in an unclean land among unclean people, and immediately what happens? He's confronted by a man with an unclean spirit, which turns out to be a legion of demons. A legion was a Roman military unit of nearly 6,000 soldiers. So this is extreme. It's a demon that's like an army of demons. But that's not all. Where does this man live? In the tombs among the dead, which again is not a place uh, to be if you're a person who cares about upholding the righteous requirements of God's law. Contact with the dead would defile someone for seven days. And so even coming near this man would compromise Jesus' purity. And then last, there are the pigs. It's one of the strangest details of this story. No one is really sure what to make of them. But one thing that's clear is that, again, this, this contributes to the unclean, uncleanness and unrighteousness of the entire situation because, uh, according to Jewish law, raising pigs was prohibited. And so Jesus meets a man with an unclean spirit living among unclean tombs, surrounded by people employed in unclean occupations, all of this in unclean Gentile territory. And we might wonder, what can Jesus possibly do in this kind of environment? What success can he possibly have? What hope does Jesus have when the deck is so stacked against him like this? What can Jesus do against this kind of foe? I mean, look at this man. Our passage tells us that no one could bind him, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Almost no one. In the presence of Jesus, this man drops to his knees and he begs for mercy. The unclean spirit who is legion realizes it has met its match. I mean, look at this. There is no fight. There's no contest. It's just as easy for Jesus to cast out a whole army of demons as it is for him to deal with one. Jesus deals with this legion just like he deals with any other unclean spirit. No incantations, no calling on a higher power. All it takes is his word, and the man is free. That's how potent Jesus' power is. With a word, the man is subdued by Jesus and liberated from his oppression. And if there's hope for this guy, don't you see that there's hope for anyone and everyone? I mean, don't you see that there's hope for you? Look at this guy. What has the devil done to him? He has no clothes. He lives in a graveyard. He can never rest. He's cut off from his community, and he spends his time screaming and cutting himself. And all it takes is an encounter with Jesus, and he's liberated. He gets connected to the powerful love of Jesus, and the evil spirit is out. He's healed. His shalom is restored. If Jesus could do this for this man, who are you to think that he couldn't do it for for you, for any one of us. You know, sometimes it's easy for us to believe that God saves sinners in the abstract, but surely he couldn't save this sinner. It's easy for us to believe in a God of love in general, but does he love me? Would he set out on a rescue mission to save me? Well, look at this man. He's an unclean Gentile possessed by an unclean legion of demons living among unclean tombs, and Jesus goes after him. Because Jesus loves this man and wants to set him free. Jesus liberates. You think your problems are bad? 
fine. Some of them are bad, but they're not bad enough to keep Jesus away from you. They're not nearly powerful enough to stop his love. God longs to restore you through Jesus, to restore you to the fullness of what he made you to be, someone created and dignified and loved by the triune God of grace. Do you believe that? I wonder where in your life do you need to be set free? Where do you need Jesus to liberate you? Last, let's look at the reversal of evil. At the end of the story, uh, the guy only wants to be with Jesus. That's understandable. But Jesus doesn't allow it. Instead, Jesus sends him back into the city to tell what Jesus has done for him. As far as we know, this is the first missionary that Jesus commissions. And who is it? A formerly demented, demon-possessed man. He is the first missionary to the Gentiles. See, this is the power of Jesus. He not only heals the man, but he then reverses the power of evil in his life, taking this man who was an instrument of destruction and transforming him into an instrument of blessing. It's like the ultimate mockery of evil. To paraphrase what Joseph says in Genesis 50 to his brothers, what evil intended for destruction, God transforms into good. And so God is like this skilled judo master who takes the power and force of evil and uses it against itself, reversing its power so that those changed by his love then become vessels of his power in the world. Being liberated by Jesus enlists us in the reversal of evil. Being liberated by Jesus means joining in his mission. Only with us, Jesus never turns down our request to be with him. He doesn't send us away without him. Instead, he says, go, for I am with you always. With Jesus and on mission with Jesus, this is what you were made for. Why does Jesus liberate us? Why does he restore us? Always for us and our benefit, but never only for us and our benefit. There's always a greater purpose. And so I wonder, how has God been setting you free? How has he been restoring you? And how can you share that with others who need to encounter this good and powerful and liberating Lord? One last thing. You know, the story ends on a sobering note. Look at verse 17. The people are begging Jesus to leave, to go away. They reject him. They force him out. And he can't continue to minister in their region. The afflicted man is restored and Jesus is rejected. Mark is pointing us to a deep truth about the cost of this man's liberation and the cost of ours. You know, at the end of Mark, which we'll get to during Holy Week, we'll see that Jesus has basically traded places with this man. In the end, we'll see Jesus ripped away from his community and stripped naked and bound and disfigured and crying out and even going to the tombs. At the end, we'll see the tapestry of Jesus' life unraveling. We'll see evil doing its worst against him. We'll see the creator of Shalom lose Shalom. We'll see that our liberation ultimately costs Jesus everything. Family, see Jesus battling evil for you, absorbing evil for you, ultimately allowing himself to be undone by evil for you. 
and then invite him in and follow him and allow him to do his transforming work to set you free. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.